Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. <laughs> and I'm Joe McCormick. And today I, I'm really excited about this one because we are getting into one of my favorite types of movie weirdness, which is unlikely genre crossovers. <laughs> uh, so I think people who have listened to Stuff to Blow Your Mind for a while have probably heard us talk about the subject of supernatural biker movies. This is something mm-hmm. that we keep coming back to over the years. Um, in that extreme niche crossover subgenre you've got stuff like uh you know grimy 70s exploitation the the musk of something like werewolves on wheels which is oh, a kind of so uh, i don't know satanic werewolf uh uh biker movie where you can really smell the armpits mm-hmm yeah, uh, but then you've also got stuff like the the extreme Lich Pope Nigel Tufnell energy of Psychomania. Psychomania is is very British. It's almost visually nasal somehow, but it's beautiful in its own right. And I think I especially enjoy unlikely genre crossovers when at least one of the genres that's being crossed is not a universal type like horror or romance or comedy, but something much more deeply associated with a particular place and time. And biker movies are a great example here because they sort of hit their peak in the late 60s and early 70s in American mm-hmm. movies. Uh, it was, I think it was part of that kind of general panic about lawless counterculture and the hell's angels and the horror of Altamont and all that you you can you can hear uh, Nixon kind of grumbling right over the back of your shoulder while you're watching these movies and so these biker movies are all the more stimulating to me at least if you can make the biker gang also a lich coven or a satanic werewolf conspiracy and so a few weeks back i was sitting at my desk working on something and I I don't remember what it was, but I I remember I kind of closed my eyes and my mind's eye opened and there was this void of howling, undifferentiated chaos and the darkness was suspended over the infinite pit. And then slowly the blizzard of emptiness in my mind's eye resolved into a single phrase, which was supernatural wrestling movies. (laughs) Now you may you may not have been aware this is a thing, Rob. I know you were aware, but but you, the listener, uh, but this absolutely is a thing. Uh, there are, of course, lots of different kinds of wrestling movies throughout history. One of the things I associate most with wrestling movies is Barton Fink, one of the most disturbing movies I've ever seen. But uh, the one of the plot lines in that is that John Turturro's character is a playwright who's been brought to Hollywood to write a wrestling movie, and he is not very familiar with the genre conventions of the wrestling picture. I forgot uh, about this. That was that was a detail in, in that particular uh, film. And, and that might be worth coming back to again later because uh, I haven't researched it fully, but a lot there's there was a lot of wrestling media in the old days like wrestling short stories uh, in oh, yeah. the same way that there were a lot of boxing short stories and it's my understanding that a lot of it has not been um has has not been uh, like you know researched and preserved in the way that other genre literature has been uh, uh preserved you know but it all uh-huh. came out during the golden age of pro wrestling Right. Well, so in Barton Fink, of course, they're asking John Turturro's character to write a Hollywood style Mm -hmm. wrestling movie, you know, the Wallace Beery type movie. But I I think what is probably inarguable is that the greatest examples realized on Earth of the platonic form of the wrestling picture 
would be Mexican wrestling movies, and especially Mexican wrestling movies starring the incomparable El Santo. That's right. So yeah, you you mentioned to me you were like we should we should do an El Santo movie, and I and my response was like okay, I'm definitely in. But we've got to make sure we pick a good one. We got because there are a bunch of them. I haven't seen most of them. I'm just kind of like aware of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm more familiar with Lucha Libre itself than than these films. So I started looking around, and then I I I found what seemed to be the perfect pick, and we'll explain why as we go. And it is Santo in the Treasure of Dracula. <laughs> now this is actually not the only El Santo supernatural wrestling movie. In fact, El Santo battled many a a creature of the night and and undead type i think he fought some zombies at some point uh he's he's gone up against mummies i think probably mm-hmm. aliens I, I don't remember all of the ones i came across i haven't really seen many of these movies i've uh i've actually seen bits and pieces of some of them i think because there used to be a bar we would go to in town years ago that would project these movies on the wall pretty often and they always looked like tremendous fun yeah they make uh, for great casual viewing I've, I've done that as well and and some folks may be uh, familiar with at least one of them uh, was was riffed on Mystery Sense Theater 3000 back in the day, but it's not an episode I've seen a lot. But yes, anyway, so, so, so given this theme of supernatural wrestling movies, the one you landed on was Santo in the Treasure of Dracula. And this movie was, uh, was a hoot. <laughs> yes, it, it has so many things going for it. Um, the backstory is fascinating. We'll get into you because you have different versions. You have lost versions, mm-hmm. uh, you know, color and black and white and and also a, a newly restored and um, released uh, version that you can get on Blu-ray. Yes, but in addition to this movie's uh, particular singular qualities, I think it's also very important that it, it needs to be understood as part of a genre in, in which uh, you can't really, I, I think, understand this movie without having a larger picture of what the deal with Mexican wrestling, Mexican wrestling movies and El Santo movies and the El Santo phenomena in general are. Yeah, so I, I'm I'm not gonna I'm gonna try not to go overboard here, but uh-huh. uh, it, I think it is necessary to have just a basic understanding of lucha libre. Uh, that's Mexican pro wrestling, uh, free fight, free fighting. Uh, just an understanding of what it is and how it sort of loosely fits into um, uh, in, 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 into its culture. So um, yeah, so first first of all, at its heart, it is pro wrestling. It's a worked fight with an athletic performance uh, central to it. So it's you know it's highly athletic. People can be injured and are injured and sometimes die performing uh, like this. Uh, it is you know it's it, the actual contact is often made, but it's also it is a performance. So it's when contact is made, you want it. You generally want to try and make it look even better, more uh, intense than it than it actually was. But this is this is a a choreographed performative fighting style. I mean, it is absolutely absolutely actual athleticism, but it's not like MMA or something, right? Um, and and it's my understanding the the choreographed nature of it kind of depends on who's performing. Like uh, I, I think a lot of these guys they get to the point where they're they're able to sort of improv. Uh, mm-hmm. A bit, but there is a structure to the match. There, it, it does have a, a predetermined finish, etc. But, uh, but yeah, this is professional wrestling. But it is the distinctly Mexican evolution of professional wrestling. Uh, professional wrestling itself seems to have emerged out of wrestling folk traditions and British grappling contests at fairs in the late 19th century. And of course, this in and of itself entails a, a great deal of carny tactics, you know, worked matches, uh, cheats, you know, strongman competitions, all of that. 
and uh, it, but it begins to really take hold and solidify into uh, a form. And the sport becomes increasingly popular in the United States and in the British Isles. And then popularity declines during World War II and skyrockets afterwards into uh, what is sometimes described as kind of a, a golden age of wrestling. So it takes roots in other parts. It takes root in other parts of the world, and you see different styles and traditions emerge, most notably in Japan and Mexico, but especially in Mexico, because this is where we see the birth of lucha libre, which probably dates back to the early 20th century here. Now, what are some of the the main and most recognizable characteristics of lucha libre? Obviously, uh, if this hasn't come through already, Rob is our in-house wrestling expert. Uh, well, I don't want to oversell your expertise. Yeah, don't, but don't you oversell are, it. It's not no. expertise. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't know all that much about wrestling, but you're a big wrestling fan. And like almost any time I have a question about wrestling, you've got an answer. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I am, I'm a Lucha fan, or I have been. I, I keep up with it now, but I don't watch it religiously like I, I used to. Mm-hmm. But I, I'd say the most obvious characteristic, colorful masks, uh, or at least shiny masks, and you know sometimes demonic masks, etc., uh, high-flying moves, and fast-paced action. But there's, there's even more to it than this. I mean, I think most people are familiar with those aspects of it. But uh, I, I want to roll through just a few of the... Um, of the ways that it is a little bit distinct from other wrestling traditions. So first of all, there's a strict dichotomy of good guys and bad guys in traditional Lucha Libre. You have the Technicos, the good guys, and the Rudos, the bad guys. The good guys are really, really good, and the bad guys are really, really bad. And this would kind of correlate to, like, if you watch WWE today, you might, uh, it, what are the terms, the face and the heel? Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. So you'd have, you know, the hero wrestlers that the crowd loves, and then the one who comes out and they 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 exist to rile up the crowd and get booed and cheat and stuff. Right. Uh, now, an, an added wrinkle in Lucha Libre is that there will often be two refs in the ring. Not just one referee, but two. A Rudo ref and a Technico ref. Because that's just fair. <laughs> it's also more like the real world. Yeah, yeah. Each It's, it's like a legal case. It's being presented physically uh-huh. in the ring. And we have uh, legal representation for both sides. Now, another big thing, and this is, this is something that's very widely known about Lucha, is that masks, the colorful masks, they may be bartered and lost. Uh, you put your mask on the line in a big match against, usually against another mask or sometimes against another wrestler's hair. Uh, and if you lose your mask, that's not only going to reveal your face to everybody, it's going to reveal your identity. So the identity of a masked wrestler is often not a matter, a matter of, uh, of public knowledge until you lose your mask. So the great star El Santo, he, I mean, he he would wear his mask always in public, not just while he was in a wrestling capacity. Like if he was doing something in public, he was masked. Right. Yeah. This was his public persona. Uh, This was how he was photographed. Uh, And a lot of this still remains to to this day. uh, But especially at the time, again, this was like the golden age of Lucha Libre we're talking about here. And uh, and yeah, he would he was the El Santo was this figure with the mask. And that's all you ever saw of him. So in closing for now, we'll probably touch more on this in a bit. But yeah, Lucha Libre is it's kind of a passion play. You know, it's good versus evil. And again, the good guys are really, really good. I can't stress that enough, especially as far as El Santo is concerned. I mean, he is the saint. Yeah, the movie really goes out of its way to show that El Santo is is lawful good to the max. He's like Batman from heaven. Yeah, I mean, he's he's basically like classic Superman, right? Where yeah. there's just not a shred of evil in him. There's no grimdark to this uh, this version of the hero. All right. So considering all the context we've just talked about with uh, with Lucha Libre, how does 
a, a wrestling tradition like this end up blending with Dracula in a feature film? Well, I mean, basically by virtue of, of him being this larger-than-life character that then transitions into film. And, uh, yeah, you're, you're left with just a whole series of films. We'll name some of the other, uh, other ones of note here in a bit. But in this particular one, this is the elevator pitch. What if Luchador and uh, famous research scientist El Santo invented a time machine that could send women back to their past lives and, in doing so, encountered Dracula and his fantastic treasure? That's that's basically the what if. That's the elevator pitch. <laughs> yeah, you know somehow the the mask does a lot of work because I I could buy El Santo inventing a time machine much better than I could buy one of the like face revealed famous American wrestlers of today inventing a time machine. <laughs> like uh, oh, Stone Cold Steve Austin invents a time machine and like, he no, goes back. To- <laughs> <laughs> that's not a time machine. That's just beer. Um, <laughs> Very good. Should we hit that trailer audio? Yeah, let's let's hear some audio here. Ahora eres inmortal como nosotros. Levántate. Y tú también. Well, let, let's start talking about some of the folks uh, that are uh, that are involved in this picture, because it's, it's really a fun group here, uh, even outside of El Santo. So we'll get to El Santo in a minute. But first, uh, let's talk about the director. And this is Rene Cardona, um, who lived 1905 through 1988. Am I wrong in thinking that he also directed the Santa Claus movie with the uh, with the extremely expressive devil figure? Yes, I think a lot of our listeners will know Cardona best from the, really, the the excellent 1959 film Santa Claus, in which Santa Claus and the devil battle for the soul of poor Lupita in Mexico City. Uh Um, That one was, of course, featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000. And um, interestingly enough, I've I've read that it apparently played an actual role in introducing the character of Santa Claus to the Mexican public, Hmm. which, uh, which is interesting. Well, but there are a lot of features in that movie that are uh, – I, I don't know where they come from or how, how they ended up being accepted in general folklore. But uh, but like in that movie, Santa Claus has a bunch of science fiction technology. He's got like these machines that allow mm-hmm. surveillance of the entire earth. And he's got a thing called the flower to disappear, which allows yep. him to teleport. Yeah. In, in a way, you could compare these two films uh, rather favorably because uh, Santa – and El Santo uh, yeah. are both super achievers, though I would say Santo is even better than Santa. But if you haven't seen it, that's a tremendous Christmas film. Now, uh, Cardona was a director, an actor, a producer, a writer, an editor, but he's best remembered as a director in the golden age of Mexican cinema. Uh, he was born in Havana, Cuba, and began medical school there, but then he had to flee the country. His family had to flee the country for New York City, uh, and he was unable to continue his studies and got involved in filmmaking, which took him to Hollywood, and then he made the move to Mexico City, uh, first as an actor, but then eventually as a director as well. Hmm. 
So on IMDb, he has 123 acting credits, 55 writing credits, and 146 directorial credits. As an actor, he was in some really well-received Mexican films of the day, such as The Priest's Secret from 1941 and The Rock of Souls from 1943. Uh, in any of you out there that are uh, you know, far more familiar with Mexican cinema and golden age of Mexican cinema, uh, let us know about those films because I haven't seen either of them, but I understand that they're very well-received and, and uh, you know, kind of legendary. Mm-hmm. But as a director, this was not his only Santo movie, right? No, no. He directed, I believe, unless there's some that are missing or the titles obscure them, seven different Santo movies, as well as some other titles such as She-Wolves of the Ring, uh, which I believe is also a wrestling picture but without Santo, Um, and then some other genre films that we'll mention in a bit. Now, maybe this is a place to talk about how uh, one thing that's interesting about this movie is that there are a couple of different versions of it that are extremely different from one another. Yes. And this this was when I discovered this detail, this was another thing that pushed this film over the edge for me uh, as our selection, because apparently when Cardona shot the film, he shot a color version and a black and white version. And more to the point, he shot a family version for distribution in Mexico, this would be the black and white, mm-hmm. and also a quote-unquote adult version that was mostly for the European market. And so, from what I can tell, the adult version is just the exact same movie, but with a bunch of absolutely extraneous nudity added in. Right, or at least um, toplessness uh, among yeah. the various women that Dracula interacts with. And we cannot stress stress it enough, none of the scenes with nudity in them um, are Santo scenes. Santo's scenes are, are entirely separate. So it's only Dracula scenes that have this added nudity, again, in this color European version. That is true. You can almost feel like a force field barrier between Santo and his scenes and any of the scenes that display like obvious prurient qualities. Right. Yeah. They, they were clearly kept separate. I believe that was probably the, the arrangement as well. It was like, well, if, if you're going to shoot these added scenes, if that's for the Europeans, fine. But this is not for Mexico. Um, it's funny that they had to do that for the Europeans. So the idea is like, hey, we want to show this to French people. They are not going to watch it unless there's like a solid 10 minutes of extraneous nudity. Right. And then ultimately, I, I mean, it's it's. Do not go out and buy this just for the nudity because the nudity scenes are very boring, <laughs> and they're very. They're, I should stress too, they're they're pretty tame too, especially by modern standards, but even by 1970s standards, really. Oh yeah, I would say the star of this movie is is Santo and the and the time machine stuff. Like that's that's what you're here for. The Dracula stuff is funny and great because it exists in contrast to the Santo content. Right, right. But if it was just the Dracula stuff on its own, that would be a bit. It would be a bit dry. Yeah. Um, but that's Dracula. He's undead, right? Um, so uh, the the interesting thing about this color, uh, quote-unquote, adult version or the sexy version, as it's sometimes referred, is that it was thought lost uh, for a long time until it finally turned up in the Cardona vault in 2011. And there was initially some controversy and even legal concerns over releasing it. Uh, I think there were you know concerns with the, um, the estate of uh, El Santo himself. Um, but uh, And this was despite advocates stepping forward like Guillermo del Toro, who was like, hey, this is great. This is vampire uh, cinema of Mexico. It should, uh, it should be shared with the world. Um, but it, it was restored, and then it was, it was successfully screened later that year and finally released on Blu-ray by VCI Entertainment just earlier this month. Now, I, I think another one of the things that's complicated is you did mention this, but to emphasize – 
the difference with these, uh, what was called the European cut is not just the extraneous nudity, but also that it was shot in color. And the restoration looks great. Yeah, I, you, you do side-by-side comparison. Uh, you mm-hmm. look at the black and white and you look at the color. And, I mean, the color is just so much more beautiful and alive. Like, one of the scenes that really... I really noticed this the most in was a scene that had nothing to do with Santa or Dracula. Somebody mowing a lawn. Yes. Uh, and it was just like this feel like it, I felt like I was transported in time just by virtue of just how clean and restored the footage was. Nevertheless, I can see why this version might have been lost, or at least why there might have been an impulse to cut the nudity stuff. I mean, apart from just opposing that on its own grounds, it's tonally extremely jarring because mm-hmm. of how wholesome Santo is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like, there are scenes where there's there's Dracula and this nudity, and then Santo enters the room and everyone is magically clothed again. Yes. Like, you can really feel the, the, the jarring edit that was like, okay, we're going to now paste over the nude scene here and the nude scene here. All right, ship it to Europe. Now, who was the, uh, the, the mind who brought us this script? All right, so the writer was one Alfredo Salazar. Um, he was a writer and director, brother of actor Abel Salazar, who starred as the brain-drinking vampire in the 1962 film The Brainiac. So if, you're, if you want more Mexican cinema vampirism, uh, that one's must-see. It's really good. We, we might need to come back to that one in the future. Yeah. Now, Alfredo Salazar wrote five Santo films, as well as 1968's The Batwoman, which was also directed by Cardona. And this also is really interesting looking because it's an unofficial adaptation, a very unofficial adaptation of the DC Comics character. And I believe it involves, uh, at times, a bikini-clad Batwoman battling fish monsters. Well, you've attached an image, and I see this fish monster here, but i got to say, he looks like the Rocketeer with claws. He does. He's like an organic Rocketeer. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, let's talk about Santo himself, El Santo, the saint. Real name, Rodolfo Guzman Hirta, born 1917, died in 1984. Again, probably the most, I mean, without a doubt, the most famous and instantly identifiable luchador of all time. Uh, He was active for five decades, and in addition to being just a superstar in the ring, he was featured in comics, he was in numerous films, often as a kind of crime fighter or superhero, uh, a super scientist even, Mm -hmm. taking on corruption, supernatural evil. He was, again, just the ultimate technico. He he never lost his mask, uh, but he did, this is interesting, he did famously reveal his face on TV prior to his death from a heart attack in 1984, and, uh, and just a year after his retirement. Um, it was. You can look it up on YouTube and see it. It's this very like human moment where uh, where he's kind of like, I'm going to show you who I really am before I'm gone. I just have to add, especially seeing this restored version of the movie where you can get more detail up close with Santo's face, like seeing his eyes through the mask. It it's easy for me to see why Santo was such a star, even outside of wrestling, because in this movie he's wearing his mask the entire time, of course. And his voice, this is only available in the version that we were watching it, only available with an English dub. So his voice is dubbed by someone else. And yet somehow he still has this absolutely powerful likableness and charisma that burns through all of those obstacles, through the mask, through having his voice completely dubbed over. I guess it's all just in his body language and like seeing his eyes through the slits in his mask. But he really did seem like, yeah, this guy is pure good. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, it, it. We have to. It's like you really can't stress it enough that Santo was not just a lucha star or a movie star. He was he was a cultural icon. Um, I, I've I've read wrestling journalist Dave Meltzer. Uh, talking about this, and he says that it's it's ultimately difficult to really you can't really point to any like American um, or even a Japanese wrestling icon and and have any idea about like just how popular Santo was. Like you would have to compare him to someone instead like Muhammad Ali or Elvis Presley. Uh, like he it was it, he was that big of a star. Yeah, I mean, even after seeing him in this ridiculous movie, like I get it. Yeah. And and again, he's been dead for decades and it still has this status that has outlived him. Now, um, it isn't worth noting Santo had nine children, but only uh, one of them followed him into Lucha. Uh, El Hijo del Santo, born 1963, who was seemingly against all odds, an incredible performer in his own right, who was able to carry on the tradition, you know, the mask, the costume, the move set. Um, he still wrestles today, but he's slowed down quite a bit, and he's been an independent talent for like 15 years now, so he hasn't shown up in either of the two major lucha promotions in Mexico. Like I said earlier, I, I have not watched nearly as much wrestling as you, and so I, I was less familiar with this. But you you posted a uh, a match for me to take a look at. It was one that was uh, El Hijo del Santo and Octagon versus Art Bar and Eddie Guerrero from 1994. And uh, this one was fantastic. And Hijo del Santo was great. I mean, doing like... Uh, a lot of like really, uh, I don't know what, jumpy kind of moves, like up in the mm-hmm. air. Yeah, yeah, high flying, twisty moves. Uh, uh, yeah, that that match in particular is one that uh, that re- that Dave Meltzer gave five stars to, which is his highest rating, and it's it's often held up as is one of one of the great lucha uh, matches, certainly of that period of the of the nineties. Uh, and, and you can find this one in all the usual places online. But if you're wondering, okay, well, what did, how about Santo himself and his wrestling? Well, don't worry. We'll get to that because one of the things that this movie features is an entire wrestling match uh, <laughs> in, the, in the latter uh, half of the film. And, uh, and I think it's an excellent representation of Lucha Libre. There's a plot conflict that takes place outside the wrestling ring. And somehow through some contrivance, it's, it, it's like whatever is the outstanding problem in the plot must be settled through a wrestling match. Yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? I mean, if people are coming to see a wrestling picture, they want to see some wrestling, not just a you know a, an occasional wrestling move thrown into a street fight. Mm-hmm. I think it often will involve like a bet of some kind, like a, yeah. you know some amount of money or object or something is in dispute, and it's like, well, whoever wins the wrestling match gets the 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 outcome they want. Yeah, it, combat by champion once again. <laughs> But of course, uh, lest we forget, this film also does have Dracula in it. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, Dracula is played by Aldo Monti, uh, who lived 1929 through 2016. He was an actor and director, born in Rome, but spent his entire career in Mexico. Uh, he played Dracula twice in this film, as well as in 1973's Santo and Blue Demon versus Dracula and the Wolfman. Ooh, that, that sounds like it's worth a watch. Uh, he also played a role in the Santo movie The Vengeance of the Vampire Women in 1970, and he directed 1975's Santo in Anonymous Death Threat. <laughs> that doesn't sound fun. <laughs> Who's he going to wrestle? It's anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, they were probably under a mask, right? That's probably the whole thing. I haven't seen that one, though. Oh, it could be. 
Uh, he also directed some horror movies, two different um, bloody horror movies, uh, Bloody Holidays and Bloody Seduction in 1986 <laughs> and 1990. V- Vacaciones Sangrientas. <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah, which I, I guess that's like Bloody Holiday. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, yeah. So the, the, these... I have known nothing about them, but the box art was bloody, so maybe they're good. Uh, he was he also acted in an interesting 1966 movie titled Panico or Panic, which which sounds like a, a potentially interesting Mexican horror anthology film. In this movie, as Dracula, he's um, he's a kind of standard sub Christopher Lee uh, type Dracula from, but but fits in with the Hammer horror Victorian type vibe. Uh, he, he also sort of has George Lazenby energy. He does. Yeah. So he, and and in George Lazenby fashion, you know, he does, he does the job, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not exceptional, but it's not bad. It's, you know, there's only so much that's required of a Dracula. All right. And then we have, um, the actor playing, uh, Louisa. This is, uh, Noelia Noel. Uh, this was the, this is our, our beautiful time traveling heroine in the film, um, Pretty amazing time travel jumpsuit that we'll touch on. She was mm-hmm. a, an Argentinian actress. She was only in a handful of films, but it, the, her filmography includes 1969's Night of the Bloody Apes, which Ooh. is also directed by Cardona. That sounds intense. Yeah, it, it looks pretty interesting. I, I haven't seen it, but it's it's on my like loose list of things to check out in the future. Um, oh, and uh, I'm not 100% sure on this, but it looks like she might have been a pop singer at the time as well. I found some... Uh, I, fa- I found some uh, some old uh, uh, Mexican or Argentinian albums. Uh, I'm not sure which, but it, it's, it's her name on it, and it looks a lot like her because she has this like signature red hair and all. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm like 80% sure this is her. I got to look up her music. I wasn't able to find any of it. I just found I found some records for sale, but that doesn't really do me much good. Well, I've got a turntable. Maybe I can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Then we uh, we also have the comic relief in this film, and this is the. Uh, uh, this is the character uh, Perico. Yeah, Perico, played by Alberto Rojas. Yes, uh, who I wasn't able to find a birth date for him, but he died in 2016. And this is Perico is Santos' super cowardly and largely incompetent but hilarious friend. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't think he's really this actor's really known outside of Mexican cinema. I could be wrong, but but he seems to have a had a very long career in Mexico playing comedic roles for film and television from 1969 all the way up to, to 2015. This was his first acting role, though, according to IMDb, wow. and he apparently is also known by his nickname uh, El Caballo. Caballo, I think I think that's horse. Oh, is it the horse? Yeah, I hmm. think so. So he's either because um, Perico it means I think parakeet. Uh, so he's either a parakeet or a horse, depending on uh, uh, which nickname you're going by. Yeah, uh, I can see either one fitting. I think he's supposed to be the, uh, a skinny, cowardly uh, butt of a joke. He, he wears a huge dollar sign necklace for some reason. <laughs> yeah, it's never explained. Uh, he's got big, big old glasses, like gigantic lenses. Uh, and I got to say, so there... The one time in this movie where El Santo was anything other than just like perfectly virtuous is when he was sort of a little bit bullying to Perico. Uh, but I think I think it's just because Perico is supposed to be super annoying. Yeah, he's so annoying, even if you're a saint. Um, you know, it's yeah. kind of hard to take. But but he's uh, I, I have to say, sometimes the the comedic figure in films like this it's a they're a bit much to take mm-hmm. but uh I, I thought this guy was great in this like i legitimately mm-hmm. laughed out loud at some of his antics um 
And I think he plays an important role in keeping the movie clicking around because otherwise most of the other characters are, are ultimately kind of static. I mean, it's mm-hmm. Dracula, it's masked men, it's sexy vampire thralls. Uh, but this guy's just overflowing with comedic vaudevillian energy. There's a great scene where he, uh, in his terror, accidentally swallows a whistle and then he can't stop whistling while talking. Yeah. <laughs> and he's always terrified. Yeah. All right. Any other actors we want to mention before we get into the plot? Uh, I would say just very briefly, there are uh, two guys in this that uh, that were wrestlers. There's this guy, um, Wrestler X, uh, Guillermo Hernandez. Uh, he shows up as, uh, as this guy that is uh, one of Santos training buddies. Oh, is this like his uh, his Burgess Meredith type guy, the gravelly yeah. voiced guy who, who helps him out? Yeah, and I believe he wrestled, if I'm not mistaken here, he wrestled as Lobo Negro and um, and wrestled Santo even um, back in the day. And then there's also a guy named Atlas uh, that pops up that is the villain's son that Santo ultimately has to wrestle. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I don't think the actor playing Atlas is credited, but I, I think it's clearly a luchador from the era. And I think it's a guy named Mr. Atlas, which was uh, D- Daniel uh, Torico um, Balderrama. And he would have been a contemporary of Santos, but I couldn't find out a lot of information about him. Okay. He was interesting because he was like, he was the champion of the villains, but he wasn't as villainous as the, he, he was just a wrestler. It yeah, he was just, just pure muscle. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's get into the plot of this film. Okay, so uh, it's got a good, I, I love a good, like, production company title card, and this one has it. There's, like, an excellent wacky one that says Cinematographica, oh, that's a hard word, uh, Cinematographica Calderon, which I think is named after the the head of the production company um, mm-hmm. that made this, and, and it says it stars Santo the Silver Mask. Uh, we may not have mentioned that point, but Santo's mask is silver, and also right. his his pants are silver when he wrestles. Uh, but in a lot of this movie, he's just like wearing a suit, which is funny. Yeah, we, yeah with the the the, the mask, it's, uh-huh. uh, it's fun. Uh. But it gives you two different titles for the movie, by the way, uh, because the European version with all of the the totally pointless nudity scenes, that one w- had apparently been retitled El Vampiro y El Sexo, <laughs> so which literally translates to the vampire and the sex. Yes. Uh, and then then it gives you uh, – but the actual title of the movie is Santo in the Treasure of Dracula. Right. Which is a, a bad, that's a more uh, authentic title. Like that's what it's about. And the first thing we get is a, a location establishment. We see like a plaque on the wall that says Dr. Cesar Sepulveda, physico nuclear, nuclear physicist. And so it's a meeting at the office of this, this nuclear physicist, Dr. Uh, Sepulveda. And I think it's important to hear the opening spoken line of the film because it gets so much done. Dr. Sepulveda is speaking and he says, My dearest colleagues, I took the liberty of holding this meeting here at my house to inform you all, distinguished members of the Metaphysic Research Society, about the work of an esteemed friend of mine, known to all of you for his scientific work, as well as having dedicated his whole life while hiding his identity to fight effectively against crime. Let me introduce you to Santo. (laughs) So many funny things here. Number one, I'm curious why it's the Metaphysic Research Society. I think these people are supposed to be physicists, not metaphysicists. Um, But then the other thing would be, uh, he says he needs to tell you about the scientific work of this person who is known to all of you for his scientific work. (laughs) 
But anyway, then Santo walks into the room, and from the moment he's on screen, he's just in command. It's like, yeah. what it, when anybody else is talking, I don't care. I want to hear what Santo has to say. So his pitch is pretty much, gentlemen, I have invented a way to materialize your body into a past existence. And he says that uh, we could use this to study cultures of the past and things like that. And all the scientists in the room are they're somewhat interested, and so they want an explanation. And he takes them next door into the lab. And the lab, uh, there are a bunch of scenes that take place in the lab. It's great. It's got a big red leather office chair, mm. beeping machines, hoses, levers, flashing lights. And Santo says, and, and by the way, I just got to say, this comes through in a bunch of parts of the movie. Whoever did the English dub over for Santo's lines has some extremely funny line delivery. I, I don't know whose voice that was, but uh, bravo to them. And I have to stress, in a way that feels very respectful, though, like it's yes. not it's not some sort of a wonky, uh, you know, hijinks kind of dubbing, uh, even though I do feel like it is it is it was done recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I don't think this is uh, like dubbing from the 60s or 70s, but it but it did it did feel authentic. It felt like they were they were doing their best to give fitting dubbing for a 1969 film. Yes. And the, I mean, often what's so funny about the dub is the, the flatness and directness with which ridiculous lines are delivered. Yes. And this would be an example. So they walk into the room and Santo says, this is my mechanical invention. It is actually a time machine. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And this one of the great things too, is that he then goes on to explain how this time machine works. And I really admired that it's not just a, hey, I made a magic portal and you walk through it and you're in the past. Mm-hmm. But like it's, it's more elaborate than that. It's ultimately, uh, it, it's a bit different than you might expect. You would expect kind of a wonky time door situation, but that's not what Santo has invented. Well, no. In fact, this piece of technology assumes the premise of reincarnation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because it says that by decomposing a subject's atoms, it causes them to be sent back to one of their previous lives. And that's just science. I mean, if you listen to Stuff to Blow Your Mind enough, you know, that's just what happens when you decompose an atom. Right. Yeah, regress to previous lives. Uh, So the scientists are like, well, why haven't you tested it yet? And he says that he hasn't found a willing test subject. uh, Because, as we will learn in the ensuing scenes... The test subject to travel back to a previous life really needs to be a woman in in good health because, as we will learn, women have, quote, four times more resistance than men, and it will be easier to radiate her cells for a longer period of time. They do not say resistance to what? Just four times more resistance. Well, it's like they say, females are strong as hell. So, um, you know, it makes sense that they, they are the ones that can survive time travel. I mean, I buy it. I'm, I'm, I'm here for this plot device. Yeah. Uh, so the visiting scientists demand proof, and because he can't give them proof, they leave scoffing mercilessly. These are the scoffers who come scoffing, and mm-hmm. they, they scoff off on their way. And Santo and his friends are very disappointed. If only they had a volunteer. Right. So uh, so they sit around talking about how they could fix this if they had a volunteer. Uh, everybody turns to look at uh, Santo's friend Perico, who <laughs> we've discussed already, his cowardly buddy. And he's like, oh, not me, boss. I'm so scared. <laughs> and uh, then they turn to their esteemed colleague, Dr. Sepulveda. And the answer is no, he can't do it. He tries to volunteer, but he's too old and he's male. Uh, And then finally, their friend Luisa asks if she can be the volunteer. And there's a little bit of hemming and hawing, but basically Santo is like, yep, let's get to the lab. Yep. (laughs) 
Oh, and we should say all the while there is a creep in a hood spying on what Santo and friends are doing. Yeah, and at, at least at this point of the film, we are to assume that this is privileged knowledge for the viewer and not something that Santo and company are aware of. Right, exactly. Yeah, there there is a creep sort of like peeking in the windows and over the hedges at what they're doing in the lab. Mm-hmm. And so Louisa puts on a rad silver time travel jumpsuit with, I might add, I don't know if you noticed this, a very Dracula style collar on it. Oh, I didn't notice that. I'm going to have to go back and look at stills. Yeah, it's got that, I don't know what you call that in fashion terms, but the kind of collar that's like sort of puffed up and large and raised. It's like a Dracula mm. cape collar. And anyway, these scenes where they're they're getting the time machine working, this is one of the ones where I was really thinking like, man, it is, it's just easy to see why Santo was a star. Again, through the mask, through the dub, his charisma shines through. Yeah, I mean, it, again, El Santo is presented as the absolute best of us. He's noble, intelligent, strong. He's just absolutely good. He's an athlete, a warrior, a scientist. And as we'll see, even his enemies often just recognize his honor. Just, just It's just a given. Oh, yeah, that's great. There are parts where the enemies are like, uh, you know, I would like to kill him, but he, he is too sacred. <laughs> yes. Um, so Louisa gets into the time machine and the time machine is very funny. It's like, uh, it's like a hallway in Christopher Lee's house in the man with the golden gun. It's got this Mm -hmm. big spiraling, uh, turning disc and, and weird psychedelic effects all over the place. Yeah, like it's basically uh, it's basically a time tunnel, which makes sense because the time tunnel was on television sixty six through sixty seven. Okay, I, I don't know anything about that. What what is that? Uh, I've never seen. I just remember s- seeing ads for it on the Sci Fi Channel back mm-hmm. in the day reruns, and it is is just a show that featured a psychedelic time tunnel that was like this crazy spiral, and I believe you went through it, and that allowed you to travel in time. Uh, I see. So Louisa travels through time and she reverts into one of her past lives where she lands on a big bed with two visible puncture wounds in her neck. And I think we can immediately see where this going. Um, Oh, and we should say that uh, Santo and Sepulveda and Perico have a way to watch what Louisa is doing on, uh, on a TV screen so they can watch her doings in the past on TV. Yeah, I love this uh, because it's it's so ridiculous, but also so powerful. Like if you uh-huh. were able to do this, like think of, I mean, all you could dis- discover about the past, like like forget actually sending the person back to their past life. Mm-hmm. Somehow being to wa- being able to watch it on uh, like d- uh, some sort of direct uh, video feed, like that's that's incredible. It is, and it's interesting to see the way they apply their knowledge to what they're looking at. Like, we find mm-hmm. out that Santo is is also a furniture expert because he immediately deduces the time period they're looking at by the furniture in the room. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he's a detective. He's, a, he's, he's an expert in all things. So in the past, we see old furniture. There's horse and carriage. Uh, and so for a while here, it becomes a movie within a movie. It just turns into a Dracula movie with Santo and friends occasionally popping in uh, to comment on the action. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, like Grandpa Munster coming in in the middle of the movie to introduce a commercial break. Yeah, which again is is it, I think it's admirable that we we don't just have a standard Santo goes back in time and fights things like we have a, 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 a far more kind of elaborate plot going on here. Mm-hmm. Santo watches a movie about the past that li- then later becomes a life and death struggle in the present. Yes, <laughs> and so this 
movie about the past. I'm not going to go super into the details about it. It's a very standard Dracula-style plot. So you get yep. a, a Slayer professor, Professor Van Roth, who's clearly the Van Helsing character. He meets a Professor Solar. Solar's daughter is sick. Her health is declining day by day. She's weak and pale in the mornings, just like what happened to her friend Mara previously. I think we might recognize the like Lucy, Mina, vampiric illness plotline from Dracula. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do love that when this whole setup is being explained, uh, D- Dr. Van Roth uh, or Professor Van Roth and Solar are in their study and suddenly there's a bat attack, just like a rubber bat attacks <laughs> the window and they have to ward it off with mistletoe, which uh, Professor Van Roth says is a herb that grows in Transylvania and vampires can't stand the smell of it. Ah, I you know, I'd never encountered this use of mistletoe before. But I mean, I guess it would make sense given the, you know, druidic uh, properties of mistletoe and it has kind of like magical properties in some legends. So why not? Sure. Uh, and to pick up further on the druidic themes right after that, I laughed out loud when I saw this when Louisa comes into the room and she's wearing this. I don't know why it was so funny, but it's this green velvet robe with like huge puffy Santa Claus cuffs on the sleeves. <laughs> And she gives this whole spiel about how uh, at night fog comes, there are dogs barking, and I see a pale face with blood red eyes. And then her dad's like, yeah, don't worry about that. (laughs) (laughs) And then, uh, oh, and then a dude shows up and he's introduced as Count Alucard. And he he just sort of like does some uh, jousting back and forth verbally with the with the the professors Uh, and Count Alucard. Yeah, get it. Yeah, it's of course Dracula backwards, uh, and this is this is uh, not the only place you encounter uh, Count Alucard. Um, you see it, we see this pop up in various Dracula movies, including uh, Dracula A.D. nineteen seventy two and nineteen forty three, Son of Dracula, uh, starring Lon Chaney Jr. And I guess the whole thing is Dracula is ultimately lazy, and if he needs to <laughs> fake his identity, he's just going to spell his name backwards and leave it at that. Uh, like, I imagine his, like, he would be horrible at coming up with a password for his email account. It reminds me of the episode of The Office where uh, Dwight is pretending to have gone to the dentist, but he's lying, and Michael asks him what the dentist's name was, he takes about 10 <laughs> seconds and then says... <laughs> Crentist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Alucard is is very, very much uh, on the the Crentist level of, um, of of creative line, but it's working for Count Alucard here because he's he's on a roll. Yeah, they're they're. I mean, it, it, basically, these people would fall for the Crentist excuse. They would they would accept that that Doctor Snow. Uh, but anyway, Van Roth introduces the idea, oh, what if Louisa is being attacked by a vampire and that's the cause of the punctures in her neck? And, you know, that could be like the many other girls who have disappeared. And then here we we transition into one of the long, I think, European cut sequences uh, where yeah. we see Count Alucard and his army of vampire women and they're vamping some new victims. Uh, there are long extraneous scenes of of extended nudity that are in no way necessary to the plot. There was one detail from this part that was funny where it seems that uh, Count Alucard puts a cute little stick-on bat tattoo on all of his lady vampire soldiers. Oh, yeah. Like, it's they don't seem to be implying or, or trying very hard to make it seem like he's branding them or anything or doing any kind of, like, magical tattoo work. It's just like he's kind of, yeah, putting a sticker on them, um, you know, stamping them mm-hmm. in ink. 
And then he tells them, now go quench your vampire thirst for human blood, as all of us must do. And there's fog and bat squeaks and blood sucking havoc. Uh, I think there was a there was a funny. I was watching with subtitles and it did have like the parentheses bat squeaks sound effect. <laughs> uh, and Count Alucard attacks Luisa in her sleep, and you know I guess as he's been doing throughout this whole time. And uh, then we, we cut back to Santo and friends, and they're watching all this on TV, putting the pieces together. And, you know, they figured that Luisa has had a past life in which she lived at the same time as this vampire, Count Alucard. And then we get one of my favorite quotes from the film. Santo, watching this on the screen, says, that vampire is Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I legitimately laughed out loud at that part. Um, this was another one of those. The voice actor who does the dub has some really hilariously straight line readings. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so the Dracula subplot here, the movie within the movie, it just sort of barrels on toward the resolution of the standard Dracula plot along standard lines. Like Van Roth, the Slayer, goes about some stakings. Uh, Dracula closes in on Louisa to seal her doom. He says, I have chosen you as my wife for all eternity. Um, I, I do wonder, though, is, there sus- is the suspense in this lessened by knowing that this is one of Louisa's past lives? Well, maybe, but then again, we don't really, it's not established, like, what happens if you go into a past life and then you die in that past life? Mm-hmm. And then, then ultimately, we know via the rules of time travel that have been presented to us, the male characters cannot travel back. Like, Santo can't go back and help her. And even if he could, mm-hmm. I don't know if there's any guarantee that he would be in the same time or in the same life or, you know, in the, that same part of the world. Who knows? That's a good point. Yeah. Oh, well, And also, you get the sense that Louisa in the past, does she ever give an indication in the past that she, like, retains her knowledge about the future? I don't recall anything like that. It's almost no, as if I, she I just, be- either. like, becomes her past self, possessing only the knowledge of that past self. Yeah, of course, it's complicated by the fact that she also falls under the power of a of a of a you know tremendously powerful vampire lord mm-hmm. almost immediately. Uh, but yeah, we, we're not given a lot to go on here. Uh, but anyway, as I said, the the vampire plot just barrels toward the the conclusion you would expect. Van Roth is trying to find Dracula and stake him. He says, "I have hired a wolfhound. The animal has the power to track vampire assassins." That's good. And then while they're watching the movie Perico, uh, he's commenting like, "Oh, where is Alucard taking her?" And he's he's very scared about what's going to happen. But then he sees all of the jewels in Dracula's treasure box. Mm-hmm. And when Dracula reveals his treasure, Perico is intrigued. He's like, could those jewels be real? I guess we're supposed to understand that he likes riches because he wears the dollar sign necklace. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and again, the, the riches here, it's, um, as I remember, it's a its a casket. One of the caskets in uh, this vault of Dracula that's just filled with what we assume to be a treasure. Yeah, jewels and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but so Dracula and Luisa, they brag about how no mortal will ever find Dracula's treasure and they go into their coffins to rest. And then Van Roth arrives to stake the vamp. So he stakes Dracula and you get the big hiss and then he's about to stake Luisa. Oh, no. So Santo and friends have to intervene to save her. And they do this by bringing her back through the time machine with a reverse footage effect before she can be staked in the past. I'm not sure exactly how that works. Yeah, but this is suddenly really like this is interesting because uh, Dracula is staked in the past, mm-hmm. and now we're back in the present, and we still have 
quite a bit of film to go. So right. this was a point where I was really intrigued. I was like, I, I wonder where this is going, you know? Like, it seems like we resolved this tr- journey into the past. Yeah, the movie is like less than half over at this point. Yeah. But then the, the, the plot in the present develops in a pretty awesome way. So we get some info filled in on the creep in the hood who has been snooping on Santo uh, and friends the whole time while they're doing their experiment. He comes back home and he meets with a bodybuilder or like a wrestling dude, a kid who's like pushing up, you know, doing uh, uh, barbells ex- exercises named Atlas. And Atlas addresses the guy in the hood as father and father fills him in on what's going to happen. The guy in the hood is like... Like, I can find Dracula's treasure because I spied. Yeah, there's a lot of spying going on in this because Santo and company know about the, the Dracula's treasure because they spied through the time machine. Uh-huh. And then we have a father and company who are spying on Santo and therefore learn about the treasure as well. Right. So we, we see there are a bunch. Of, I guess the guy, uh, the, the guy in the black hood is supposed to be a crime boss of some sort he's got gangster thugs who work for him and there's a great scene where he calls them on the phone and they're sitting around a table playing cards with liquor bottles and cigarettes and guns and one of the guys at the table playing cards looks like a standard 1940s or 50s film noir button man you know suspenders a fedora cigarette that kind of thing but then there's another one of the thugs who looks like a philosophy professor or something it's like he's got like a turtleneck and a sport coat and he's smoking a pipe uh but anyway the 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 gangster guys here they get their instructions from the the dude in the black hood they they are told to do surveillance on dr sepulveda's house but no guns he says that the life of santo must be sacred to you all that's right. Even the villains, they they have a code when it comes to Santo. Mm-hmm. So here we get Santo and friends investigating the remains of the vampire's lair. They're going to, you know, like where Dracula got staked. That's like a secret crypt and they know how to access it because they watched the past on TV and they, they go to find it. And uh, Perico is very afraid. There's a part where Santo says, aren't you a man? And he says, I am a little mouse. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he's like cowering in the backseat. Uh, uh-huh. yeah, it's, it's great. He's, he, he hits this note all the time in the film. Uh, and, and somehow it works. Like he's, you can compare him very easily to uh, Shaggy and Scooby-Doo, right? Mm-hmm. Um, ex- oh, totally. Except, except more, more hilarious. He should have been eating like, uh, you know, 14 layer sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but so they're searching for the right crypt and there are Perico shenanigans where he's running around being scared and uh, and and Santo tells him if he's in danger, he can just blow the whistle and we will come to help you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while they're investigating the crypt, the hooded man and his dudes follow behind and then eventually there's a big fight. Uh, Santo and his friends versus the hooded man and, and his his goons. And this is the part where Perico swallows the whistle and he can't talk without whistling. Yeah. Uh, but of course, uh, Santo wins the fight and chases the other guys off and Santo gets the, it's actually a little more complicated because like they, they don't just know where the treasure is. It's that Dracula has a couple of pieces of jewelry, like a medallion and a ring that have markings on them in Serbian that tell the location of the treasure. Did I get that right? Yeah, because like there's a later scene where the guy in the black mask, the villain, is like, I'm going to get these artifacts, then I need to fly to Transylvania and find somebody who can translate the Serbian. Yes, yeah, that's it. Uh, but you need both of the pieces of jewelry, and Santo and friends only take one piece. They take the medallion. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but me and meanwhile, the bad guys get the ring. So each side has one of the pieces of jewelry. Uh, and Santo wants to continue investigating Dracula, despite Luisa having a bad feeling about this. She says, like, humans should not venture into the world of the unknown. Uh, but Santo says we have to keep investigating Dracula and find the treasure for two reasons. He says, first, to prove to those scientists who mocked me that my theory is right. And then second, uh, quote, to find a vampire's famous treasure, which will help the people in need. <laughs> and I like this because they make it clear that Santa would not keep the vampire's treasure to himself. He would he would give it to the needy. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's just the code. That's the way he is. Right. Now, now one thing that's worth uh, driving home here, and we'll come back to this in a bit, too, is that it is revealed in all this, in the obtaining of the, the ring and the medallion, that that Dracula's body is still staked there. Like mm -hmm. his body, once staked, it did not, you know, burn away or melt into snakes and crickets or anything. Like he's still there with that stake uh, through his heart. Right. Um, and, and that'll become important in a bit. Right. So eventually Santo and his friends end up in another big fight with the, the Black Hood and, uh, and his goons. And Dr. Sepulveda proposes a solution to their problem because Santo will not hand over the medallion, even though the guy in the hood wants it. And uh, the solution proposed by, by Dr. Cesar here is that there should be a wrestling match between Santo and the Black Hood's son, Atlas. And the outcome of the match will determine who gets Dracula's treasure, who gets both of these artifacts that will together spell the location. Yeah, and of course, Santo agrees to this because this is highly honorable. And like, let's face it, he's he's El Santo. Right. <laughs> like he has a very strong chance of winning this, uh, no matter uh, how great Atlas happens to be. Right. And then we get a great scene that's a tutorial on the rules of wrestling using Perico kind of as a, as a dummy, uh, just mm -hmm. getting body slammed over and over. And, uh, and, and of course, here's where we meet Santo's own uh, gravelly voice trainer. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of, I don't know. It's, it's it's like he's training him or training with him. But I remember I was also thinking, like, why does El Santo need anybody to train with him? But I guess yeah. for the purpose of the plot uh, and also just for the comedic fun of having Perico slammed on a uh, on a comfy mat and then having like what six luchadors all pile on him yeah. for comedic effect. It was it was pretty good. Uh, and then it's wrestling time. Uh, so we get a great wrestling match where uh, where it's Atlas versus El Santo, and they do they show you the whole thing. It's three rounds, yeah. and it's just like there is a wrestling match in the middle of this movie. Uh, yeah, and it's it's actually pretty good. Like you, yeah. by modern standards, you might expect the wrestling scene to be like have a bunch of hyper cuts or to be a montage or something. Mm -hmm. But no, this is like a complete. I mean, maybe it's not as long as it would be in real life. I'm not exactly sure. But it feels com like a, a very complete wrestling match, Lucha Libre match, with all of the signature spots and sort of the, you know, the, the, the Rudo winning the, mat the, the round he's supposed to win. Mm -hmm. um, you get to see the high-flying moves. You get to see the mat wrestling, which is also important, you know, complicated submission moves and all. And it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's great. Like, if you want to see a fun little Santo match, uh, just watch this film because it's there in its entirety. Extremely... Uh, impressive tumbling moves. Again, I, I'm not as big a wrestling fan as you are, but uh, I got into it. I really wanted Santo to win. Yeah, like there's a part where, you know, the, uh, the, the Rudo uses a special submission move to win one of the falls. Mm -hmm. And then in the uh, towards the end of the match, 
for the final fall, he tries to put the same move on him, and Santo fights out of it. So it's uh, it's, it's right it's right good. Totally. And the the one thing though, in the middle of the match, there was a moment where I started thinking, wait a second, wasn't there a vampire in this movie? <laughs> and then I was worried for a bit. I was like, are there going to be no undead in the conclusion of this film? Has it just turned into pure wrestling and like the vampire stuff was just for the first third of it? Oh, ye of little faith. Yeah. Uh, so Santo wins the wrestling match and uh, the bad dude hands over the ring, but gasp. He has made a copy. He is uh, not honorable. He cheats, I guess, because he's a Rudo. Yeah. So what's the bad guy's plan at this point? Well, they've got a brilliant plan. It's to unstake Dracula, wake him up from the sleep of the damned, and then he will kill Santo and his friends. And after Santo and his friends are dead, the bad guys will be able to get the medallion necklace from them. And then together with their copy of the ring, they can find the treasure. Yeah, they they, they kind of skipped over how they're planning to... To, to lose Dracula in all of this because they're, yeah. they're also awakening this uh, terrible undead threat, right? Right. I mean, I think the logic is we, ha- we stand a better chance against Dracula than we do against Santo. Well, that's fair. That's fair. Right. So what, uh, so then it goes kind of into third act warp speed. Uh, you know, so the vampire is awakened. He hypnotizes Louisa again. Uh, the bad guys scheme and scheme again. Uh, there's one part where the, the, the villain in the, in the hood tells one of his, one of his buddies, uh, you fool, they haven't invented a bullet that can kill a vampire yet. (laughs) And it also, there's a car chase where they're, you know, Santo and the bad guys are chasing each other around and it has one of my favorite sound effects, which is car tires screeching on a dirt road. (laughs) Well, I mean, you got to try, no matter what kind of road you have to work with, you got to try and make it look like a car chase, but you've also got to make it sound like a car chase. Right. And then there's another big throwdown fight. It's Santo versus the Hooded Man's goons. And in the end, the Black Hooded Man's identity is revealed. I won't spoil it, but it's a, it's a good villain unmasking. Yeah, yeah. Very. This is the sort of unmasking that would become popular with Scooby-Doo uh, cartoons later on. Uh, pull the mask off, find out who was behind all this dastardly plotting all along. There's also a final confrontation with Dracula and with his army of the damned. But uh, I, I won't reveal how Santo wins that one. I will say there. I was slightly disappointed that Santo never directly wrestles Dracula. But I will say he outsmarts him, and it reminds us that a hero is not only brawn, but also wits and wile. Yeah, and it makes sense, too, right? Because Dracula is so much about, like, carnal physicality and desire. And uh, and, and Santo defeats him without ever even having to physically touch him. So, uh, you know, in, in a way it works. Though, to be clear, there have been vampire-themed uh, Rudo luchadors over time. Ooh, yeah. yeah. Well, there was one guy that. that wrestled as Nosferatu. Though his costume didn't particularly look very like vampire-esque. He didn't look like Nosferatu so much, but his name was Nosferatu, and I, I enjoyed that. Well, I would like to watch some more supernatural wrestling movies that resolve in a more brutal, direct way, where the monster is just wrestled to a submission at the end. <laughs> what if you did a Frankensteiner on Frankenstein? Ooh, well, that that would be ooh, that would be interesting. Yeah, I don't know if that's ever been done. I don't know. That seems like someone should have done it by now. I'm mm-hmm. not sure. You you had a lot of different horror movie characters pop up in in wrestling, certainly in Lucha Libre, uh, like for a, a long time. Maybe still, you could find Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles wrestling in in Lucha. Um, just just kind of a standard. Get some guys in some turtle costumes and get them out there wrestling for the kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, had various. Uh, 
like I think in in Japan you had like Jason Voorhees uh, wrestled, Leatherface wrestled, uh, Freddy, some of the Freddy Krueger outfit wrestled. So uh, you know the the two go together mm-hmm. quite well. I also like how at the end of the movie, uh, Santo agrees with Luisa that it's sort of the final moral of the piece. It's that humans should never, ever enter the world of the unknown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, though apparently it paid off, right? Because presumably right. they were able to get the treasure and then give it to the needy. So I'm I'm not sure we should say never uh, venture into the unknown because it, it, it seemed to have some benefits here. That's a good point. They probably saved lives by entering the world of the unknown. Yeah. You know, um, all told, I was I was very impressed with the plot and the pacing of this film because, again, it could have even knowing that it was going to have time travel and Dracula in it, mm-hmm. I was kind of expecting something a lot clunkier. You know, like Santo goes back in time and wrestles Dracula, but there are a lot. It has all these twists and turns in it. It's it's very watchable. Towards the end of it, like towards the end of other films from this era and of this sort of caliber, you know, you often reach that point where you're like, "Geez, when is this going to end?" Uh-huh. Uh, but with this one, you're more like, "I don't know if they're going to be able to wrap it up. How are they going to wrap it up in just ten more minutes?" Uh, now, now one of the things that I found really interesting. In this is the whole business with staking Dracula mm-hmm. and Dracula not dying, but then being able to, he's just frozen in the box in this state of suspended animation. And then when he's unstaked, he just wakes up and carries on where he left off. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this does seem to be, you know, this is a, a, a variation of the vampire legend that you see other places. The idea that the stake doesn't kill the monster, but rather fixes it and freezes it to the spot. Very mm-hmm. much like staking something down to the earth so that, like staking a tent down. Sure, yeah. So, uh, you know, it's interesting that while one often encounters the stake to the heart detail in vampire legends, you know, sometimes there are particular wood requirements for the stake. Uh, there's at least one variety where the vampire must be staked through the mouth. There's another where a large nail must be driven through the forehead. Um, and I was looking at a book by one Paul Barber titled Vampires, Burial, and Death. And he points out that the stake to the heart might have picked up steam because if you if you actually unearth a decaying corpse and you drive a stake into its chest, um, the c- decaying corpse will very often produce a sound. In fact, mm. Barber writes that it, it would be surprising if it did not, um, because the lungs are going to be compressed by the stake's entry into the chest, and this will force air and gases to explode out of the mouth and produce a sound not unlike a groan or a hiss, sometimes compared to the squealing of a pig. And this detail was apparently specifically pointed out in 1732 by the Royal Prussian Society of Science. Wow. Yeah. Just when I thought we we discussed all of the vampire science facts on this show, that that's a new one. Yeah. So, I mean, you can imagine how if you had enough people, certainly with superstitious ideas in mind, were unearthing bodies, uh, cadavers, and then driving stakes into them, they might say, well, you heard the gasp. You heard the sound coming from this creature's mouth. Right. Clearly, we just slayed it. We killed it, or at least we, you know, we, we staked it to the spot so it can't come up again until uh, you know, sometime in the future when criminals remove the stake <laughs> as part of a, a ploy to steal treasure from a luchador. So I guess every time they did that and the corpse made a made a wheezing sound, they, they would have thought, oh, we should have asked where it had treasure hidden first. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, then again, it sounds like a great way to be tricked by a vampire, right? I mean, it's, it's yeah. kind of like going after a leprechaun's gold at that point. Ooh, yeah, that can be dangerous. 
Why aren't there more films about about vampire treasure? You know, that was another yeah. thing that, that feels a little different about this film. So oftentimes it's just about the threat of the vampire. But, yeah, vampires have been around a while manipulating lots of people. Uh, sure. It makes sense they have treasure. Yeah, they would always have uh, have stores of riches, I would imagine. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Dracula's investing in real estate in London. He's got he's to have some uh, something in his bank account. Yeah. Then he's leaving for Mexico. Um, uh-huh. I guess it becomes difficult to really couch this within the timeline of Dracula's life. That's another thing. So in in the world of Santo in the treasure of Dracula, when they watch the story of Dracula and Luisa's past life unfold on the TV – and the characters comment on the fact that, oh, I didn't know Dracula ever came to to America. <laughs> and they were like, Dracula? What? Dracula in the Western Hemisphere? That's strange. Yeah, it seems like a whole side discussion should take place. Okay, there was an actual historic Dracula who is a vampire, mm-hmm. but he was not killed in London. Uh, he is actually he actually lived and came to, to Mexico. Yeah, it's... Uh, it, it it probably strains the brain if you think about it too hard. But luckily, it's a Santa movie, so you don't really have to. I think in the book, he's killed in Transylvania because they go Is back okay. to his castle. Oh, he goes at the back. End. That's, That's right. right. That's it's right. in the movies usually that they stake him like at his abbey in London. That's right. I have to admit, every time I, I read Dracula or see a, 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 a you know a pretty accurate uh, adaptation of it, mm-hmm. it's that first chunk of of, uh, of Dracula that I'm most into. Yeah, Agreed. once it leaves Transylvania initially, I it, I don't remember it as much. I, maybe I'm less in, interested in it. That, but that first story is gold. Oh, I think I must admit that I I generally enjoy the movie adaptations of Dracula better than I like the book itself. Yeah, which is which is not true of a book like uh, like Frankenstein. I love in the original, but yeah, Frankenstein in the original as if far it's superior translated. piece of literature. I yeah. would say not to say that Dracula isn't important as well uh, from yeah. from a literary standpoint. All right, well that's Santo in the Treasure of Dracula. Uh, you can find both versions of this film out there, you know, in the usual places. But the new VCI version just came out on Blu-ray, and it looks amazing. Uh, again, the the restoration is is, is wonderful. Uh, my only gripe is that I, as good as the dubbing is, I I wish I had the ability to have the Spanish audio, but there's no Spanish audio included on the disc. Yeah. So uh, I don't know what the reason is for that, but uh, that would be my only gripe. It could be that the the audio was lost for this cut of the movie, but yeah, um, yeah, I don't know why that is, but I agree. It would also, I think it would have been nice to, to hear the original audio with uh, and just have English subtitles. Yeah. And of course, the, the black and white version has been a while, around for a while. Uh, but again, like it just, it, it the quality isn't there. Like the, it's just the, the black and white footage is so grimy looking. Uh, it, it looks like it was unearthed in a tomb, you know? I feel like what somebody should do is put together a, a fun for the whole family cut of the great looking restoration, you know? Yes. So like you can cut out, cut out all the like, uh, you know, European cut R rated scenes. So it's the kind of movie you can enjoy with your five year old, but it's still got the eye popping color and all that. Yeah, absolutely. Cause yeah, it's, it's, a, it's such a colorful film. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and uh, drive a stake into this one. Uh, but yeah, who knows? Maybe we'll be back with uh, with another Santo film in the future or heck, some of those biker films we mentioned early on. Uh, <laughs> I'd, I'd be game to, um, to, to rewatch one of those for sure. Psychomania. I hear it calling. Yeah. Or some other biker. There's, there's a lot of biker films. Uh, you know, not all are great and not all involve supernatural elements, but uh, 
um, you know, that's that that would be my one big gripe about the Sons of Anarchy television series is they never uh, brought werewolves or vampires into the mix. I've never seen it, but uh, I can't imagine that werewolves would hurt. <laughs> well, hey, yeah, oh, Ron Perlman. Yeah. Get him. Bit oh, by he's a in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He plays like it's essentially Hamlet, uh, but with <laughs> bikers for FX. Um, OK. <laughs> so you got Perlman in there. Yeah, he would have made a good uh, werewolf. Oh, just having Ron Perlman in the cast is almost that almost makes it a supernatural film in its own. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we, uh, prompt to you, the listener. Uh, what is your favorite bizarre niche genre crossover film, especially if it's like crossing over a usually non-supernatural genre with a weird supernatural genre? That, I think that's my favorite type. Yeah, yeah. We'd love to hear from you on that. We, we're already getting some great suggestions for Weird House Cinema. I've added some of them to the list. There's even one film that I, I just went and ordered a copy of based on a listener's suggestion. So keep them coming. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Weird House Cinema, it publishes every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. And you can find that feed wherever you get your podcasts. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 